So it might not seem like it, but it's the middle of the day here in Beijing. The air is so polluted that it's darkened the sky. Most of the progress towards the environment and saving it and getting rid of carbon, etc., has been done on a local level. Some people with the goal well, of making energy both cheaper but also completely clean. And so, with the right innovation. Uh, clean energy is actually cheaper than dirty. World's energy. biggest energy agencies believe the oil market will rebalance by the second half of this year, but there are still questions about price. Brent crude is down by more than. We will unleash the power of American energy, including shale, oil, natural gas, and clean coal. What we're going to do, folks, is going to be so special. Special. Hi, and welcome to this edition of Off the Charts, the podcast of the Energy Policy Institute at the University of Chicago. I'm your host, Sam Oring. U.S. climate policy is in a state of significant uncertainty. Over the past year, federal policy has been characterized by a series of regulatory rollbacks aimed at easing emissions limits on everything from power plants to vehicles and industry. Yet in spite of this shift at the national level, policy in California, the world's fifth largest economy, has in fact grown more ambitious. As chair of the California Air Resources Board, Mary Nichols has been central to those efforts. For over 40 years, she's played a pivotal role in developing and implementing the state's environmental and climate policy agenda. Recently, EPIC and the Chicago Council on Global Affairs hosted Chair Nichols for a conversation with EPIC's director, Michael Greenstone, moderated by The Washington Post's senior national affairs correspondent, Juliet Alperin. Here's their conversation. No one who's been following energy and environmental policy over the last couple of years could miss the key role that California is playing in this country. And obviously, you alluded to some of those commitments that Governor Brown has made, including recently signing a legislation pledging to move to 100% renewable electricity by 2045. And so I thought that you could maybe talk us through about how does California put together the mix that's essential to reach that decarbonization goal, and then Michael could talk about where, where both the, the potentials and the obstacles in, 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 in pursuing that strategy. So sure. if you could start. Uh, clearly, every state has its own uh, unique uh, set of resources. We don't advocate for everybody to do things exactly the same way that we did. But we started out this uh, effort to address the problem of global climate change from a baseline of having already uh, removed coal from any part of the mix that we burn in California. So that sounds great, right? We had to get rid of the coal because we were getting rid of the air pollution. But there's a problem there, which is that we, in fact, are quite dependent on coal-fired electricity. Uh, it just gets imported from other places. Uh, so when we first started on this task, one of the things that was very clear from the legislation, AB 32 was the foundational uh, legislation that committed us to achieving a uh, rollback to 1990 levels by 2020. And we agreed that we would be responsible for reducing emissions from out-of-state sources that serve California and not just to look at what's going on inside the state. So we had to develop a program that was a mix of measures, which was designed uh, with a lot of input, not only from electric utilities and uh, from advocacy groups, but also from uh, experts from our university system and people who weighed in around the world. And what we ended up with was a 
uh, at the time, what seemed like the most aggressive renewable electricity standard uh, imaginable, uh, which was 33%. That was like huge. Uh, and also a, uh, a um, program that would uh, put a cap on overall emissions and, have, and allow for trading of allowances underneath that cap. So we, we have the cap and trade program in place. And we have some other measures that are also designed to reduce the overall uh, carbon content of the energy mix. But the, the bottom line is that we started from a baseline where we had already done a lot to uh, replace the highest carbon sources. And the goal was to push particularly the Southern California utilities over the edge to phasing out their dependence on coal and to add on a lot of new renewables into the mix. We already had a considerable amount of solar, both central solar and rooftop solar that had come in as a result of previous policies, but we were adding on to that, adding more wind uh, as well and looking at other renewable resources as well. So it's, it's, this has been the result of a long-standing effort. And I also should point out that you know, efficiency has been kind of at the heart of this program, really going back to at least the 70s, where mm -hmm. California was uh, growing in population, our economy was growing, and there was a need to look at just building new power plants. And were, were we going to have a proliferation of power plants up and down the coast? And decisions were made back, going back that far to really pursue energy efficiency as a goal from, from the get-go. Got it. And Michael, when you look at, again, kind of a, what everyone I think would say is a heavy lift of the transition that now California is committed to, how do you see that landscape playing out in the Yeah, system? no, I think, so I think it's, uh, Mary's very right to bring up some of the history and yeah. to level set. Uh, if the world is really gonna do something about uh, climate change in a meaningful way, uh, you can't go from zero to 100 miles per hour. There has to be a lot of experimentation. And I think California has served historically as a very important laboratory, both for environmental policy in the United States, but uh, I think increasingly uh, so for climate policy. Uh, I think what the California has set out to do going forward is probably taking it up a couple notches. Uh, I think the, if, if I have my trends right, I think there's been a decline of about 1% a year of CO2 uh, in California. And to meet the targets that were recently set, it would have to go to about 3%. Uh, and that will inevitably turn to kind of some of the harder to pick fruit. Uh, and I expect that there's going to be a lot of learning uh, along the way, and I think we probably all owe some debt to California for being willing to do it, and honestly willing to do it, and uh, you know, the first person who does it often has to do it in a more costly way than the next person, and there, I think that it's in many respects is a laboratory that ideally the world will be able to learn from. Got it. And so exploring, for example, some of that harder to pick fruit, one thing that certainly comes up is the electric vehicle uh, issue. And so just yesterday, we had two announcements out of California that shows both the state's emphasis on, elect on electric vehicles as well as some of the challenges, which is uh, that on Wednesday, a VW unit, Electrify America, announced a $200 million plan to increase EV charging infrastructure in the state, right, which included uh, a plan to add fast charging sta stations to uh, some areas as well as make investments along highways. 
And that same day, you had the official launch of a nonprofit group called Velos, which I guess is a coalition of automakers, state officials, and utilities talking about a public awareness campaign, Electric for All. And I was wondering, what do you see those two rollouts in California saying about how you're going to achieve that target, which is 5 million uh, electric vehicles on the road by 2030, correct? Sure. And, and how you'll get there. Well, first of all, the the uh, fact that those two announcements came at the same time was an accident. It did not happen by oh, design, but it worked out extremely well. And, and it helps to kind of tell the story because Electrify America is an offshoot of Volkswagen. It was okay. created to be an electric charging company uh, after we and US EPA, but led by uh, California and a couple of universities and nonprofits, um, caught Volkswagen in a massive scandal, what became a massive scandal involving right. misrepresentation of emissions from their diesel vehicles. Uh, after heavy penalties and a lot of bad publicity and investigations back home in Europe as well as here, um, Volkswagen is fully committed now to electric vehicles as their future. They want to be a global company. They want to give every other company in the world a run for their money. They want to be number one, and they are going to do it through electric vehicles. So part of their settlement with us was to put some money into uh, a, a voluntary program to uh, increase the amount of electric charging in California because they knew that the state was very committed to the goal of transforming our vehicle fleet to be zero emissions. And uh, so this latest, this is actually round two of an investment plan that they offered up as part of the, as part of the settlement. Mm -hmm. And uh, it represents the largest investment ever in electric vehicle charging, and it's still not close to being enough to provide charging for all of the electric vehicles that we anticipate having mm -hmm. on the roads uh, by the 20 30 or so time frame. So then, so how, and how do you hope to fill that gap? Then? Well, our electric utilities are stepping up to the plate. They see themselves coming into the business of being transportation fuel suppliers, and they will be major transportation fuel suppliers in the future. They're looking to uh, electrify not just passenger cars, but perhaps an even more important and potentially lucrative market, I think, is in the area of trains and trucks and uh, ships and even planes. There's serious work going on on electrifying uh, aircraft. So we got that going on. Uh, and at the same time, we also, with only you know 500,000 or so electric cars out there on the roads, that's a drop in the bucket compared to where we need to go. It's been increasing fast, so the rate of uptake is very steep, but we still have a very long way to go. And one of the things that we've found is that in a state as big as California, for all that I may think that electric cars are everywhere, at least half the people who are seriously in the market for a car are not aware that there are electric cars that they could actually buy today. And there's reasons for that. I mean, one is you've got to see a lot of them to actually have a sense that they're out there. You know, like you go from like, really, to wow, they're everywhere. Um, and there's a, there's a tipping point in there somewhere. And we're not quite there yet. Uh, if you live in certain parts of LA or, you know, uh, San Francisco, maybe 
you might have seen a bunch of different electric vehicles, but you don't see them being advertised very much. And one of the reasons for that is because the auto companies, even though they know that that's where their future is, they're saying it and they're putting their money where their mouth is now in terms of their research and development and plans for the future, but they still don't make any money on them yet. The costs of the batteries are high, the costs of the uh, getting into this market are high, and so they're in this kind of weird position where they don't quite really want you to buy an electric car if they could sell you a small truck instead. You know, there's going to be more money there. So what we've done with this new nonprofit, which most of them have joined as members and are putting money into, is to say, okay, the state and the utilities and others, many cities who have a vested interest in this change happening, we're going to help with a campaign to raise public awareness of these vehicles. And we're not just going to talk about how good they are for the environment, although they are. Uh, we're going to talk about what great vehicles they are. Because for all I can get angry at the car companies from time to time, and I, and I do, um, they have done a terrific job of designing and producing excellent vehicles that you could actually go see and drive that are fun to drive, they are great to handle, they have terrific acceleration. You know, many things about these vehicles uh, are aspirational and they should be Got getting it. some reward for that. Got it. So I think we've learned that Mary could have a future as a car dealer if that is what she chooses to pursue. I drive them myself. You uh, know which Michael. car would be in the front window. Exactly. Uh, so talk, talk us through some of the economics yeah, no, so of this. I, I think actually this is like uh, the electric vehicles is kind of a perfect encapsulation of what I see California doing. So if we want to attack the climate problem, I think there's uh, really two things that should be focused on. One is pricing car, uh, carbon emissions so people want to do less of it. Uh, and the second is trying to make sure that we have technologies that are available to help do that in a uh, low-cost way and in a, in a way that uh, benefits not just the people who uh, invent uh, the new technology. And so I, I, I like to think of, there's, I, I have two sides of my brain. My first part when I started listening to is, well, wait a minute, can't we really have a very targeted uh, carbon emissions policy related to gasoline? And wouldn't we be happy if internal combustion engine cars uh, got much more efficient? And I agree with that part of my brain. But the other part of the brain in solving the second problem is, uh, the truth is the electric vehicles really aren't up to speed right now to, to solve the climate problem today. But it's hard to imagine uh, ma major progress. It's not impossible, but it's hard to imagine major progress on the climate without electric vehicles really being ready uh, to be used by lots of people. And so these kinds of policies, I view them as trying to drive down the costs and improve the technologies that underlie uh, these cars. And so I think, again, in that spirit, probably in, in the happy state of the world, we're all going to owe a big thanks to California's uh, aggressive efforts uh, to expand uh, electric vehicles. And it's not just in the technology, but I think it's also in some of the issues Mary talked about, the cultural acceptance of the cars and certainly dealing with uh, charging infrastructure as well. Um, so just staying with cars for a moment, just last month, uh, the, the California Air Resources Board took an action aimed at conveying to the automakers that even if the federal government is freezing fuel efficiency st uh, standards for cars and light trucks for six years, California is not, when the board clarified a provision that tells companies that they will only be able to sell vehicles, quote, deemed to comply with state uh, tailpipe standards as opposed to federal ones. Um, Mary, could you start by explaining what that means 
means, as well as give us a sense of the status of the ongoing negotiations between California and the Trump administration over these this pending proposal? Uh, well, so the standards that we're talking about here are standards that were adopted uh, when President Obama was in office, and they were negotiated with the auto industry. But it was a time when General Motors was just emerging from uh, bankruptcy proceedings, and other companies were uh, very much in a precarious financial situation. Uh, California had already embarked on our efforts to try to reduce greenhouse gases from vehicles, and we had set a tailpipe standard. We don't regulate fuel efficiency uh, directly. We can't. Uh, mm -hmm. Legally, we're preempted by the uh, CAFE law from doing that, and we've tried very hard to draw a, a clear line, even though uh, there's a, certainly a relationship between uh, fuel economy and greenhouse gases. Mm -hmm. But there are other things that also contribute to a car's overall uh, carbon footprint, including the air conditioning systems and other components of the vehicle, et cetera. Okay, so we participated uh, as a state that was already setting standards, along with the two main federal agencies, in setting standards that were intended to go from 2017 out to 2025. And the car companies, all of them, the domestics and the, and the imports, agreed to uh, this set of standards standards, which would have us, by 2025, having a corporate average fleet uh, fuel economy, fleet fuel economy, of uh, what was considered to be 51.5 miles per gallon. I'm not going to get into how gnarly these numbers are, because they are. Um, there are sort of two separate curves. One is for light vehicles, one for heavy vehicles, et cetera. Uh, but the bottom line is here that we agreed to doing a mid-course review, midterm review, that would take the vehicle standards from 2021 to 2025 and say, okay, is the technology evolving? Can the companies meet these standards? Are they really okay? And this was done uh, in the last days of the Obama administration. And the U EPA administrator at that time and the head of uh, DOT announced that the standards were in fact feasible, they could be met, and they should go forward. Fast forward to the election, President Trump comes in, he meets with the heads of the auto companies, and they say, mm, nope, can't do it, it's too expensive, people are buying too many trucks and not enough small cars, so we need relief. And that's what now started us on this path to have a proposal for a rollback of the standards that has now come out of the, out of the Trump administration. We, as California, had uh, given our consent to the federal standards by saying, we'll let the companies comply with our standards, which are more stringent. If they comply with the federal standards, we'll call that deemed to, com they'll, they'll be deemed to comply. And uh, now that this is no longer going to be the case, apparently, uh, we wanted to signal that that was not going to be acceptable as far as we're concerned, which really takes away one of the main um, benefits that the auto companies were, got from these new standards, which was one set of standards that they had to, that they had to comply with. It, there's still a lot of time and a lot of things that have to happen before this all com finally uh, comes into effect. But the thing that I really uh, would want to point out to people is, first of all, um, better fuel economy uh, sometimes translates into a slightly higher cost for the purchase of a new car. It is always made up for by the... Uh, 
by the savings in having to put gas into that car, even at relatively low gas prices. And right now, gas prices are going back up again. Uh, the other thing is that um, to the extent that people are buying uh, these crossover vehicles, the SUVs and light trucks, uh, because they feel more safe and like, they like to be sitting up higher on the road and mm -hmm. so forth. They are not buying them because they want to use more gasoline. And there is technology out there today, very available, that could be used that would make those vehicles even more efficient. So we're not, as California, trying to force people into small cars. We're not trying to make them buy cars they don't want to buy. That would, we are not. That's not the way we think. <laughs> we think we think in terms of having a diversity of technologies available, but having them be as efficient as possible. So we're still fighting that fight. And um, I believe that, uh, based on what I've seen, that we're on the side of where most of the public is on this issue, consumers and others who you know, feel like the company should be doing their best to make these vehicles more efficient. And Michael, do you think that we could be headed to a situation, as I was talking with Ryan Kellogg earlier today, where the automakers end up selling efficient vehicles in California and the states that embrace it, less efficient vehicles elsewhere, and you don't get the climate impact that was? Yeah, so Ryan's uh, research on this is uh, spot on, and that is would be one unfortunate unintended consequence of that. But mm -hmm. I, I, and I think that's important to bear in mind, mm -hmm. and just to underscore what you're saying, the idea is that the efficient cars would be sold uh, in California, and all the other cars would be sold out. And there, nationally, there would be no difference, although inside California, there would be a difference. But actually, I want to, uh, since we're in Chicago, yes. I think the phrase is from our uh, current mayor that, that uh, crisis should never be wasted. I think that's approximately right. <laughs> And I don't think Mary actually thinks this is a crisis because I think she has a very she believes that California has a very strong legal hand. Uh, but this mashup between the federal government uh, and the state of California, I think at least could be viewed as a crisis, and I think it could be viewed as an uh, but I think instead it should be viewed as an opportunity. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, why do I think it should be an opportunity? I think currently. Uh, and this is I'll come back to the left and the right side of my brains, like the. Uh, least expensive way uh, to get reductions in CO2 out of the transportation sector is probably not uh, from CAFE. Uh, it's probably something like a gas tax, and I, I understand the CAFE is a particular body that you can't shove a gas tax into, but the way that CAFE is structured, it actually makes it even more expensive than is necessary, I think. Uh, and part of the reason Mary alluded to is you have uh, separate standard, like the planet doesn't care if the gallon of gas was burned uh, in a car or a truck, but CAFE standards care a lot about that. Uh, and there's much more lenient standards uh, for trucks uh, than there are for cars. And even within those categories, there's quite large differences based on the footprint uh, of, of the car. And so what I would propose is, as long as everyone's talking about this, and this is a possibly a crisis, why not turn it into an opportunity? Uh, and the opportunity, I think, lies with sweeping away all the differential treatment uh, of trucks and cars. Uh, and possibly even adding on to that uh, some kind of imputation of uh, what the number of miles that the vehicle is going to be driven on, which uh, in principle could be done. And now full disclosure, Sam Worry, Cass Sunstein, and I have written a proposal that outlines exactly how to do this. But I think there's, it's very rare that there's an opportunity to revisit 
policies in place for a long time, and I think this might be one, and would be a way that could be a model uh, for California, for the country, and abroad for how to get drive very inexpensive reductions in uh, CO2. Correct. So I think we actually agree, although maybe for a different reason, which is that we regulate the emissions. We don't, as I said before, we don't regulate the fuel economy. This whole CAFE law came into being at a time when we were worried as a country about imported oil. It was designed to deal with the issue of oil imports, not to deal with impacts on the environment at all. And it's not very effective, as you say, in, in accomplishing the environmental goal. Uh, from my perspective, if we could focus on the thing that matters, which is what's burned, and, I mean, the, burn, the amount of emissions from burning stuff and burn less, that would, that would be a better goal. So how challenging would it be to get rid of the differential treatment of cars and trucks and uh, Well, it's enshrined. We're now in the CAFE law. We, yeah. don't, we don't distinguish between them when it comes to light-duty vehicles. If right. they serve the same purpose, they're all in the same category. But I, I'm not certain whether we could get Congress to go along. I think that. in the 2020, if my, I think it's in 2025 that there's yeah. an opportunity to kind of you reset. You could reset. Oh, you could reset. reset. And as in you know, these things have to, they don't appear overnight, so the right. foundation right. has to be laid early. Um, so staying in Chicago, since we're here, uh, and, and in Illinois more broadly, where there's a gubernatorial race underway, um, obviously uh, we'll see what happens uh, next month. But if, if you were, for example, advising the, whoever is, is governor in, the, uh, you know, in, in uh, 2019. Uh, Julia, since we're in Chicago, and, we're, and I sensed you stumbling, uh, it's J.B. Pritzker is running. Oh, no, 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 no. I was, I was just not. No, no, I know it was running. I was just not. I was trying to phrase it broadly. Just in case you didn't. There are also, there are other, also there are more than two candidates. We could get into, you know, third-party candidates, but I'm not going to do that. You could stick with Pritzker and, and, and the current governor. Um, uh, what, what kind of, if you were to advise one thing that, that this state could do, as opposed to putting aside uh, California for a moment. Michael, let's start with you. What's, what's the kind of the, the one policy move that would have the biggest impact? So I think, uh, as I said, I think people that we should be trying to do two things with climate policy. One is get a price on carbon, and the second is per explore new technologies and figure out what is kind of under the hood with them. <laughs> Uh, and I think California's done tremendous, you know, the world will end up, when they write the history book, will owe California a great debt of gratitude for pushing forward on a lot of the technologies. I think what we don't have uh, a great laboratory for uh, is uh, what would happen if you took carbon pricing uber seriously uh, and really set up a stringent cap and trade market without backup policies. Uh, that mandated reductions in particular areas, but let the free market sort out uh, where the cheapest reductions could come from. Uh, that, that would be one part of it. The second mm -hmm. part of it is I would set that price uh, uh, at the social cost of carbon, not at a arbitrary number, but uh, at the social cost of carbon, which is the monetized damages from the release uh, of an additional ton of CO2. And Mary, if you had to be a free, freelance uh, policy analyst, oh, sure. is there, what well, would you say? It, first of all, as I understand Illinois, which is not as well as many people here do, I'm sure, um, it's a state that it is like California in the sense that you have big urban area 
and rural areas, and they're different in what they need and what they want. So, you know, uh, I don't know why anybody needs to drive a pickup as their primary vehicle if they live in the city of Chicago or its suburbs, especially since you're well served by transit, which we envy, by the way. Um, but uh, maybe people who are uh, living in rural areas do. And so one of the things I think it behooves a governor to think about is whether you could have a statewide program that um, helps serve the needs of both or and all sectors of your economy. The reason why we have a mixed program in California and not just a, a price on carbon is that we were looking for something that was both effective and also politically acceptable because if people aren't willing to go along with your program, mm -hmm. you know, if the price of gasoline goes up to the point where people actually feel like they can't get to work and they don't really have an alternative, you are not going to continue to have that policy. That is not a sustainable program for dealing with what is a very long-term problem, which is the problem of global warming. I and mean, we need to act fast to get a handle on it, but we also need to uh, do things that people can accept as having benefits, other benefits as well. Now, the one thing that I'm in some ways the most proud of that we did in California with our cap and trade program is that we use the revenue that the state gets from the small number of allowances that we actually sell because we actually initially gave most of the allowances away for free just to get people started with the idea that they would have to uh, participate in this carbon market. But we we sold allowances to the tune of now around $7 billion, $7 to $8 billion that the state has taken in from this program. And more than half of that money has gone to benefit the most disadvantaged communities in the state of California, directly and indirectly, most of it directly, to, to fund projects and programs that help deal with the problems of pollution and other related problems in those communities. And that, in turn, frankly, has then gotten us support from people who otherwise really were not that interested, either in the abstraction of global warming or certainly in um, economic programs, which tend not to be things that the public really likes when they hear about them. So can I just add a codicil to that? I think uh, <laughs> the, uh, I think, so that's one thing that's not often appreciated. Yeah. Carbon taxes or cap trade markets can produce a lot of revenue. Mm -hmm. uh, now, if you're in Illinois, you would probably, the first thing you heard revenue, you'd think, oh my goodness, we can do something about the pension crisis. <laughs> uh, that might come uh, to mind. But setting that aside, you know, an alternative, uh, rather than state programs directed at particular neighborhoods would be, let's just start cutting a check and send it out every quarter to every household. And I think that could, in principle, be a way to create a constituency. Well, um, we are uh, out of time at this point, so I would hope you join me in thanking both our panelists and the Chicago Council on Global Affairs and the University of Chicago's Energy Policy Institute for sponsoring this forum. So thanks so much. Thanks for listening. Make sure to subscribe to Off the Charts wherever you get your podcasts, including on Epic's website at epic.uchicago.edu. Until next time, I'm Sam Oring. <laughs>